Hey everyone, welcome, welcome. Um, I'm Janet, I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to be here, happy to be back. Um, being here and seeing all of you actually does compete with Aruba where I just spent a fabulous week. Um, but tonight I get to talk about my all-time favorite chapter in the big book, We Agnostics. Um, we'll talk today about it. Well, I'll talk today. Um, won't make it through. And so Thursday, Thursday, I'll finish the rest of this chapter. So what we do here is like for about 40, 45 minutes, either Melissa or I will talk, and then we open it for questions. So um, if you have your book, we are on, I want to go to the very bottom of page 43, the last paragraph of more about alcoholism. Um, before we dot dive into step two. This is kind of encapsulating step one. So they want to make sure we all understand step one before we move on. So they say once more, again, it's like they want to hit us over the head with it. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. The compulsive eater has no mental defense. Except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. So there goes the idea of group as a higher power. The big book closes that door. No human being. His defense must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. We have no mental defense. That means I can't talk my way out of it. So we turn the page. Um, and on page 44, we agnostics, it starts by saying, in the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism or compulsive eating. Well, what have we learned, right? We have to make sure we're, that when we're here, we've learned what they wanted us to learn. Well, step one says we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. What does that mean? And what did they want us to learn? So what they wanted us to learn is that desire alone doesn't do it. Um, that there is something in our brains that's different from other people's brains. And the way that I understand it, what we need to learn is that our brains have a break in it. If you can picture a bridge connecting our memory to our conscious mind and that bridge being broken. Well, what does that mean? So normally um, my memory is a defense against something dangerous. So for me, I have really bad cat allergies. So stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if someone invites me to her house um, and she has a cat and I'm tempted to go because I want to hang out with my friend, my memory will immediately scan the data points. No, this time you were near a cat and you had an asthma attack. That time you were near a cat and you developed a sinus infection. Grabs all the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to say, stop, danger, cats will give you an, a, an asthma attack. My memory protects me. Or the book gives the example of hot stoves, right? Um, in my memory are all these data points of Hot stoves will burn your hand. I've touched a hot stove. I've learned about it. That's why we don't let our two-year-olds play near hot stoves. They don't have the data points in their memory. So I'm about to clean up after dinner, but I just cooked on the stove tonight. Um, 
I actually did tonight. I made sausage and peppers. So there it is. The stove's hot. And if I'm about to clean it immediately, my memory will grab the data points that say, hot stoves burn your hand. Generate a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind where I make decisions and say, stop, danger. Hot stoves will burn you. Clean up later. But what about with food? Certainly as dangerous to me as cats that produced asthma attacks or hot stoves that blistered my finger. So my memory does a pretty good job. My favorite binge food when I was in college was a certain type of cookie. It came in a box of 20. I would tell myself, I'm just going to have one or two. Um, we know how that story ended. I would eat the entire box of 20 and sometimes more. Um, I'd hate myself. I'd feel miserable. So in my memory were all these data points of Janet saying she's just going to have one or two cookies, but she ends up eating the whole box. And so there I go about to leave my dorm room, walk down the street to the Dwayne Reed where they sell these cookies, buy a box of 20, but I'm just going to have one or two. Well, my memory scans the data points, says, sees, you know, oh, she says she's going to have one or two and eats all 20. She says she's going to have one or two. She made herself throw up after she ate the whole box and got another box. All these data points. So my memory grabs these data points to generate a thought, to run across the bridge, to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one or two. You will eat the whole box. You will hate yourself. Don't do it. Except, unlike with cats and hot stoves and things like crossing the street when a Mack truck is coming, when it came to food, the bridge was broken. There was no connection between my memory of past binges and how awful it was and my conscious mind. You know, back on page 24, um, it talks about our memories fail to hold us in check because when it comes to food, a compulsive eater has a broken bridge. So once we know that, then it's like, oh my, what am I going to do? Just knowing I have a broken bridge doesn't fix it. Just like if there's, you know, a bridge in my town that gets wiped away by the flood and I say, oh, okay, there's no bridge anymore. That doesn't do anything. Um, and if I were to say, well, I'm going to build that, rebuild that bridge in my town, I'm in big trouble. I don't know the first thing about engineering or bridges. Someone else has to build that bridge for me. And that's what this program is about. The our protection is a bridge from God to myself, to where I make my decisions. The one between my memory and my conscious mind is forever broken. I need a bridge to my creator. So that's what they've told us in step one. And that's what they expect us to have already learned. And this chapter is called We Agnostics because there's some people who may read the chapter before and when they see his defense must come from a higher power, they say, I'm sunk because I don't believe in a higher power or I believe in a higher power, but I don't know how to access him, her, it, whatever. Um, and so that's why this chapter is written. So it says, it's still in the first paragraph, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. 
you know, someone called me today and she says she can't stop binging. Um, and she says, I must not want to. And I say to that, no, that is the definition of an addict that we honestly want to, but are unable to. That defines an addict. Um, and it says, or when you start, you can't stop. That defines an addict. And they say, okay, if that's you, you may be suffering from an illness. What a relief. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a person with, you know, who's weak. I have an illness. And it says, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Okay, what the heck, right? An illness where I can't remember that if I say I'm going to have one cookie, I'm going to end up eating 20 plus. Um, and they're saying the solution is a spiritual experience. Um, well, a couple questions here, right? First, like, what the heck is a spiritual experience? And why is that the solution? Um, so a spiritual experience is defined a couple places in the book. So page 25 is one of my favorite. It says that um, second full paragraph, we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And this is what it does. Um, revolutionize our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do for ourselves. And page 27, it continues on and it says, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast aside to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them. In other words, God comes in and does like kind of a rearrangement on our hearts. You, you know, I was thinking back to, I don't know what grade it was, maybe fourth grade. And we would do these like little experiments in science where you would move a wire to, you know, one hole on the opposite side and nothing would happen because it was like a positive to a positive and you needed a positive negative. But then when you put it the right place, suddenly the board lights up. We are people who have to be rewired. When I was binging, I was told that the Janet that I was would never be able to stop binging. I had to become a new person, a new Janet. The only problem was I couldn't do it myself, right? Um, I couldn't make myself change. So they're telling me this was my only hope, a spiritual experience. Well, why? And it's because at its root, this is a spiritual illness. Um, in the next chapter, how it works, it says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So at its roots, this is a spiritual illness. So it needs a spiritual solution. Um, it's just like if I had a brain tumor, the solution isn't Tylenol right? Tylenol may make my headache feel slightly better for a short amount of time. Not going to cure it. I need surgery or chemo or whatever. 
So we say, okay, the only solution is a spiritual experience. Um, and we know what it is. And it's kind of exciting, right? I mean, imagine like God kind of rewiring me so that my selfish, self-centered priorities are kind of pushed to the side. And a new set of motives dominates me where I really care about other people. I mean, that's kind of cool. But then the next sentence says, well, to one who feels he's an atheist or, or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. What if someone says, yeah, I'm an atheist or an agnostic, but look what it says to one who feels he's an atheist or an agnostic. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about this in depth on Thursday, but over and over in this book, um, in fact, Dr. Bob, one of the founders of this program says, if you think you are an atheist or an agnostic, um, because as this book tells us, deep down in all of us is the fundamental idea of God. It's there. We just have to clear stuff away. So they tell us to be doomed to an alcoholic death or a compulsive eating death or to live on a spiritual basis. Not easy alternatives. Notice they don't say believe on a spiritual basis. Live, right? I could believe in God and still go out and rob a bank. I won't get better if I do stuff like that. Um, and then they tell us, thank God they tell us, it isn't so difficult. Half the original fellowship were either atheists or agnostic. So they're saying if, you were, if you're an atheist or agnostic, if you think you are, you're in good company. About half of our founders were. Um, and they tried to, they said, hoping against hope were not true alcoholics. It says, but we realized we had to find a spiritual basis of life. What does that mean? What is a spiritual basis of life? And can I start practicing it even if I don't really believe? Yes, we can. So a spiritual basis of life, trust God, clean house, help others. At the very least, we can help others from day one. Um, do self-sacrifice for the good of other people, not just random acts of kindness, you know, nice things, but things that are a sacrifice. Um, we can start doing that. And it says, um, okay, here's things that don't work. If a mere code of morals or better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. Like what's a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life? I don't know, how about the 10 commandments, right? That's a pretty well accepted good code of morals. Doesn't help. Um, and it says these codes and philosophies didn't save us. Look at that word, save us. If I've got this illness, I need to be rescued. I can't just I can't save myself. You know, this illness has been um, talked about as quicksand. I can't save myself. It says we could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. We could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. How come? How come I didn't have the power to be nice even when I wanted to? Because as we'll see, God requires total commitment. And God's not a genie in a bottle who will come and take away my food obsession and then go back in his bottle so I can go out and be a mean, nasty person. 
And then they tell us what I think um, some of the key sentences in this book, page 45. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. Not lack of desire, not lack of willingness, not lack of the ideal food plan, not lack of even a good moral code. Lack of power was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power, right? So now we know our problem. I don't have the power that I need. Well, how am I going to get it, right? I can't plug myself into electric socket. What do I do? And then they say, well, that's exactly what this book is about. So this book is about finding and accessing the power greater than ourselves, which will solve our problem. And it tells us those exact words, its main object. So the main object of the book, the numero uno point is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. I think that is one of the coolest lines in the big book. So if someone is an atheist or an agnostic, let's go on a treasure hunt for God and look for clues. What clues did we just get about God? Well, if this power is going to solve my problem, this power must be able to think, right? A hurricane is a power greater than me, but a hurricane can't think. So this power should be able to think. This power must be strong because the illness is stronger than I am. So I need a power stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And third, this power must be smart because I have two master's degrees, couldn't figure out how to solve this, this problem. So this power must be smart if it can figure out, you know, the illness is described as cunning, baffling, and powerful. I need a power that's stronger than that. And fourth, and I think most important, this power must care about me, must love me, because this power might be able to think, might be strong, might be smart, and could sit back and say, yeah, Janet, I can solve your problem, but I'm not going to. I don't have to. I'm not getting paid to, not doing it. I'm watching Netflix. But this power doesn't. This power cares enough about me, about us, to solve our problem. So that's our first clues about God. And we think, okay, that may be a God I might be able to get a little interested in. And it says, okay, we've written a book which is spiritual as well as moral, spiritual, my relationship to God, which we'll find out has to be one of trust and obedience. And moral, I have to live a certain way. And it says, and it means, of course, we are going to talk about God. And says, okay, we know you may not like it, but stick with us. And bottom of page 45, he says, yeah, we know how you feel. We've shared your honest doubt and prejudice. What's prejudice? Prejudice is a preconceived notion, not just about a different race or religion. But in this case, about God, prejudices about God. And then it goes through the chapter saying some of us have been violently anti-religious. Um, the word God has brought up a particular idea. And they go through, and I see um, five or six different prejudices here. So see if I can remember them all. One, the concept of God we were given or that was modeled to us as we were growing up is insufficient. Um, second, 
if I believe in God, it makes me weak. Third, I can't believe in something or someone that I can't understand. Um, fourth, if there was a God, why does he allow such bad things to happen? So there can't be a God. And then fifth, if I believe in God, I can't do what I want. So I'm going to say a few words about them all. Um, the first one, the concept of God we were given as kids or was modeled to us doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I, my parents were really good people, but you know, I think sometimes if my mom wanted me to do something, it's like, God's not going to like that. Um, you know, so you grow up then with a the concept of a God who's like, keeping track of all your bad things. Well, that doesn't work because if God's keeping track of all my bad things, I didn't have a chance in the world of recovering. Um, but we can choose our own conception of God. So I could say, I reject that conception of God. I want a God who's all loving. Um, not a Santa Claus God, because that won't work, but a God who loves me. Um, second, if I believe in God, it means I'm weak. You know, when I'm sick, I go to the doctor and I never sit and say, I have pneumonia, but if I go to the doctor that for penicillin, that makes me weak. It doesn't, you know, it's a sign of like, to me, intelligence, right? If we, if I know I have pneumonia to go to a doctor and get penicillin, um, I can't believe in something I don't understand. I do not understand about electricity, how stuff can go through these tiny wires outside my house. And then I turn a switch and lights go. I don't understand how it works. Um, I still turn the switch on because I've seen that when I do, the light goes on, the power comes in. The fourth one, if there was a God, he wouldn't allow such bad things to happen. This was a problem that Bill Wilson had on page 11. He says, you know, the war, the chicanery, if there was, you know, a God, what's he doing? He says, if there's, it seems the devil is the boss. That's what Bill Wilson said. And it was just said to him, basically, I don't know about things like that. I mean, I sit there, my heart breaks over human trafficking. I sit there and say, why does God allow it? And the truth is, I don't know. Um, but I know that God is good. And one day, you know, I believe I'll be face to face with him and ask him. But for now, I just know, all I know is when I do what I think God wants me to and trust him with the outcome, my life works and I'm not obsessing about food. So I leave the big questions about why bad things may happen to good people um, to a mind that is smarter than mine. And the fifth one, if I believe in God, I can't do what I want. Um, yeah, it's true. But by the time we're beaten into a state of reasonableness by this illness, we're kind of ready to give up doing everything we want because we see that it didn't work. So um, page 46 has some of the most reassuring lines in the book. It says, okay, as soon as we're able to lay aside prejudice, so we need to look at the different prejudices we have and not just see them, but kind of work our way through them. 
and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So a few things here. They're very clear. This power is God with a capital G. Now, the big book takes no position on any kind of religion, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, no religion, whatever. Big book takes no position, but it's God. It's not the group. It's not a doorknob. It's a power, you know, un, um, a power greater than me, a power that's able to think that's smarter, that's stronger, and that loves me. And it says, as soon as we're willing, we get results. So they put willingness kind of on the level of belief itself. If I'm willing to believe, they say that's good enough. Um, and I have a note in the margin that a line I heard from someone else, willingness opens the door to grace. Isn't that pretty? Willingness opens the door to grace. But it says we have to express a willingness. So how do we express it? So here's what we can do. We can say a prayer to a God who we think may or may not exist. We don't want to be honest. We don't want to go to God and say, I truly believe you exist. If we don't, because then we're lying to God. We never want to do that. We want to be honest. So a prayer might go something like this. God, or whatever your name is, I don't know if you exist. And if you do exist, I don't know if you really love me enough to heal me. But if you do exist and you do love me, please help me to find you and please help me. And that prayer, if there is no God, what have you lost? 20 seconds of your time? But if there is, that may just like open things up where he just, I don't know, grabs a team of angels and says, okay, she's ready, go. Start that renovation job in her soul. Um, a willingness to believe. But we can't stop there, right? Because if I say that prayer and then go and I'm like mean and nasty later, uh-uh, I have to do what I know. Um, a recovered alcoholic I knew said, any alcoholic from day one can stop lying and stop stealing. We can stop lying and we can start trying to be of use to others. And it says we get results. Well, what results do we get? So the next paragraph tells us, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, again, not doorknob, not group, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps. Well, Guys, that was my problem, right? Lack of power. And what do I get? I get an infusion of power and direction as in, what do I need to do next? What do I need to do? Um, direction, keep going ahead with the steps. Again, provided we take other simple steps. So, you know, people ask sometimes like, well, you know, I've come around, I've been going to meetings for 30 years and, you know, I'm still not one bit better. And that's not what, what gives us power. It doesn't say as soon as we've gone to meetings for X number of years, it says, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of God and take other simple steps, 
that's when we get power. That's when we get direction. Um, and then they tell us, God doesn't make too hard terms with those who seek him. He doesn't make hard terms, but he has some terms, right? We have to start acting the way we believe that God, if he existed, would want us to act. Um, and it, we have to seek him. How do we seek him? By prayer, meditation, um, spiritual reading, and helping others. And says, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, and all-inclusive, never exclusive. So not limited to any race, religion, anything like that, and not forbidding to those who earnestly seek. We have to seek, but God doesn't hide in a hard spot. It's like when you play hide and seek and, you know, everyone always tries to hide in a place where no one can ever find them. Not God. He wants to be found. So page 47, they talk about, they say what we need to ask ourselves, um, first, second full paragraph, do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? I think that's important because some people aren't willing. It's like, we'd rather be right and win philosophical debates about how we can't prove there's God. We'd rather be right than be recovered then be healed and healthy. Um, and they're saying, we have to be willing to believe. Um, and willingness is a decision, right? On page 58, it says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths, then you're ready to take the steps. So I can, will is, I can put my will into action. You know, when the alarm goes off, I don't always want to get out of bed, but if I have to get up to go to work, I'm willing, even though I may not want to. I've made a decision to put my will in action. So we have to be willing. Do I believe or am I willing to believe there's a power greater than myself? And the book says, as soon as a man can say he does believe or is willing to believe, he is on his way. And then they say, this is great news, right? If we're not sure we believe, that's great news. It says, for we had assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, which seem difficult. So they're saying that even if we're not sure there's a God, we can start practicing spiritual principles. If you are not sure what the spiritual principles in this book are, um, Karen M., one day, well, I guess it took her multiple days, went through this book and made a list of all the spiritual principles in the book. And they are on our website. So Trisha, if you could post it. Um, and these are principles that we can all start practicing. And they say, yeah, basically we do what we know how to do. Top of page 48, they tell us what handicaps us. So we looked at prejudices now we're looking at things that handicap us, right? If you think of someone who's in a wheelchair, he's handicapped, he can't run the way that someone else can. What handicaps us from really believing in God? And it says three things, obstinacy, which is a stubborn refusal to change our opinion, sensitiveness, 
that's like where we just get all prickly if anyone says something to challenge us. Like we get just like hurt feelings like, oh, it makes me so upset if you challenge me. Mm -mm. And unreasoning prejudice. We have to work through our prejudice. And it says, you know, that sort of thinking has to be abandoned. Um, But it says, you know, Alcohol is usually the great persuader that helps us be open-minded on spiritual matters. And it says it finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. So I would say if someone really is um, refusing to believe in God and just says, no, I can't and I won't, um, I would question whether that person really had a first step. You know, there's an old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. When there's no way out, suddenly we become open-minded. Um, you know, and then page 48, they just continue on about what we talked about a little before, about um, everyone wants facts and results, but we don't all have it. And they give the example of electricity. I mean, we use electricity without understanding it, right? I turn on the switch because that's what I know to do to get electricity. How it gets here, I have no idea. Um, But I know I have to pay the bill or I'll turn the switch and nothing will happen. And so for me, I know I have to submit to God or nothing will happen. And they tell us on page 49 how we should um, think of ourselves as intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. We are like part we're supposed to be part of what God wants to do in this world. And I believe for us compulsive eaters, one thing he wants for us is to join him in his search and rescue missions for other compulsive eaters who are still struggling. That's what we are. You know, we're people who are here to help God advance his agenda. Um, I never knew that because I was too busy advancing my agenda. And they, again, it says we beg you to lay aside prejudice, even against organized religion. So that's another thing that can, you know, keep someone in bondage, organized religion. And it says, you know, we should look and see people of faith have a logical idea of what life is all about. It says, we used to amuse ourselves by cynically dissecting spiritual beliefs and practices. Um, We can't do that. We can't be cynical, which means bitterly or sneeringly distrustful. Now, I was just in Aruba and on the street, there were two people there all the time giving out pamphlets for a religion that wasn't my religion. Um, I'm allowed to be discerning and just say to myself, that's not for me and walk by and not take a pamphlet. But I am not to sit there and say, how can they believe such stupid stuff? Uh Uh-uh. I can't do that. Maybe other people can do that. I can't. So it says we can't cynically dissect other people's spiritual beliefs and practices. What we're supposed to do is observe that many spiritually minded persons of all races, colors, and creeds were demonstrating stability, happiness, and usefulness, which we should have sought ourselves. I think no matter what anyone's religion they respect Mother Teresa. And anyone's religion, they respect Gandhi. And they were people of two totally different religions, but they're people, two people who are pretty much universally respected. 
And what are we supposed to look for? How am I supposed to be stable? How can I be happy out of this misery of food? And how can I be useful? In page 50, it tells us what we often unfortunately do instead. It says, we look at people's human defects and use their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. That's the like black and white thinking that we addicts have a lot. That's like, I meet one Eskimo and let's say the Eskimo isn't nice to me. If, then I assume all Eskimos are mean or someone's, you know, in Catholic school and some nun hits them with a ruler. I don't know if they do that anymore, but let's say they get hit with a ruler and they say, all Catholics are, are horrible people. We're not supposed to do that. We don't do wholesale condemnations. And then it says, we have to give the spiritual side of life a fair hearing. And they tell us, in our personal stories, you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power which is greater than himself. So that's the point of our stories. Yes, we share experience, strength, and hope. But what's the strength that we have that we've approached and conceived of God in our own unique way that may be helpful for another person? And what's our hope that God has come down and rescued us? That's what our personal stories should be about. And they say, yeah, we all, we approach God in like many different ways, but on one thing, all the founders of AA agreed on. Imagine a hundred alcoholics agreeing on something. And here's what they said. Every one of them, a hundred percent has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself, which has in each case, a hundred percent of the time accomplished the miraculous. They believe in a power greater than themselves and have gained access to it. What good is it to believe if I don't have access? If I believe in electricity, but I haven't paid the bill and I don't have access to it. My belief does me nothing. And then it tells us here are thousands of men and women now, worldly indeed. So they're saying not stupid people, smart people. And they say that they've, once they've, commence to believe in a power greater than themselves, so faith, take a certain attitude toward that power, surrender, and do certain simple things. Oh, that's a surrender. Certain attitude is humility. So we have faith, humility, and surrender. And what's the result? There's been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking. No more collapse, despair, total failure. What do we get? It says a new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. It wasn't lying dormant inside me waiting to be awakened. It flowed into me like a pick line of grace going into my heart, like an infusion. What do we get? Power. That's what we need, right? Lack of power is our problem. Peace. Who of us ever had peace in the illness? happiness. You know, God could have just removed our food obsession, but they, he throws in happiness and a sense of direction. I don't know if you guys were like this, but I was always saying, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Why am I here? That goes away. We get a sense of direction. We get a great sense of purpose. And page 51, they say, 
putting aside the drink question, they're saying, even if we weren't drinking, if we weren't binging, um, life still wasn't good. And now the consciousness of the presence of God is the most important fact in my life. That's what they're saying. Not the fact that they weren't drinking or binging, but they are aware that God exists and is active in our lives today. And again, they warn us, um, don't fetter your mind, like fettered, chained, shackled by superstition, tradition, and fixed ideas. Um, it says, we have to really examine these things. So page 52, um, just gonna do a little more and then we're gonna stop. It has um, what's called the bedevilment, right? The, the symptoms of an unmanageable life, having trouble with personal relationships, can't control our emotion, miserable, depressed, trouble, can't make a living, feel useless, fearful, unhappy, can't help other people. And they say, wasn't a basic solution of these bedevilments Bedevilments means to be controlled as if by devils. More important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight. Um, the, a basic solution. And the solution they offer is a relationship with a power greater than ourselves. And they just say, okay, when we saw others solve their problems by simply relying on this spirit of the universe, we had to stop doubting the power of God. So they're saying, look around. You can get rid of your prejudices, get rid of your handicaps, and look around at your friends and fellows who have recovered by trusting and relying on God. And they give one example. They give an example of the Wright brothers, you know, the guys who, I guess, invented the airplane. Or, um, and it says, their almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. So you would, if someone were to give you a pop quiz and say, what was the mainspring of their accomplishment? What did they need to have? I know I would say aerodynamic ability, you know, a knowledge of gravi gravitational pulls or physics. And they say, no, their simple faith. Without that, nothing could have happened. Well, how come? Why is that like so important? I think of it like this. Um, in our world, the currency to get things done is money, right? If I want a, a bag of groceries, I go to the store, I hand the clerk a credit card or a $50 bill, and I get a bag of groceries. If I want gas in my car, same thing. Um, if you think about it, if a Martian was looking at our world and saw me handing a piece of plastic to a gas station attendant, and then he fills up my car with gas, he would think it was totally bizarre um, or saw a green and white piece of paper with a former president's picture. And then I get a bag of groceries, but that's how things work in the physical world on earth. But in the spiritual world, I cannot hand God my American express card and expect healing. It doesn't work that way. God wants faith and it's generally shown by prayer. God, I think you're there. I'm not sure I need help. Prayer and faith are the currency in the spiritual world. And the Wright brothers had it. And they're telling us that that's something that we need to get to. So um, I'm going to stop here. We'll pick up 
next week on not next week on Thursday, page 53, finish up this chapter. Um, and yeah, that's all I got. So with that, I will pass. Thanks.